in 2016, months before the US elected Donald Trump, it was this message that shocked Europe and even the world. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. But it didn't stop there. In fact, Brexit went on full effect this January, four and a half years later. Since that vote, there have been countless breaking news, protests across the UK, predictions of a hard economic hit, and two prime ministers lost their jobs. I love this country, and I feel honored to have served it. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honor of my life. To, to help me figure out what the UK has gotten itself into, why it was so hard to reach a deal, and who won and who lost, I'm joined by Anand Menon. He is a professor of European politics and foreign affairs at King's College London and director of the UK in a changing Europe. Despite an extremely busy schedule and interviews around the clock, especially during this time, he was generous Hi. enough to find Hello, time to talk to us Good, how are twice. You but it's, it's been four years since Britain voted for Brexit. And can you guide us briefly through the chain of events that led us to this point now? Because um, some of us might not be able to recall how we got here since it's been so long. I mean, it's interesting because the seeds of Brexit were sowed in the 1950s when the UK refused to join the European Economic Community. The UK-EU story is a complicated one from the start. When the European Union was being formed in the 50s, the UK refused to join. It then wanted to join in the 60s, but the French denied its application twice. When it finally entered the EU in the 70s, the UK was joining a club whose rules were already set, which, according to Anne and Menon, made it feel uncomfortable from the start. I think actually one of the things that scarred this country from the start was the fact of belatedly joining a club whose rules had been set by other member states, particularly whose rules had been set by the French, where the structures in place were very French. If you look at the European community, you know, there are commissioners have cabinet, which is a very mm. French thing. So actually there's a sort of first mover advantage. If you're in at the start, you get to shape the institutions decisively. And I think there is an argument to be made that we were never comfortable. The other thing I would say is, uh, while all the other member states see European integration as, a, as an economic project through which they achieve political objectives. So for the original six, pooling coal and steel wasn't about pooling coal and steel, it was about preventing war. Uh, for the Greeks or the Portuguese or the Spanish, joining the European uh, community wasn't joining the European community, it was leaving dictatorship behind. For the countries of Eastern Europe, the symbolism is obvious, whereas for Britain, our economy wasn't doing as well as their economy, so we joined to make our economy. But there was never the political overlay. So the seeds of Brexit were sown from the start of our membership. I think in terms of shorter term context, 2008 was absolutely pivotal because you have both the financial crisis. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 7th of October. There's more bad news on the economy. It's looking very, very bleak at the moment. It seems that the emotions running through the city of fright, fear and, and panic the MPs' expenses scandal in the UK, which sort of destroyed trust in politics still further while imposing a real economic hit on the population. Because of the Eurozone crisis, numbers of EU citizens coming to the UK increased. 
massively. So you have a whole load of contingent things. And then, of course, you have the referendum. I am in favour of having a referendum. What ultimately allowed British people to leave the EU was being able to vote on it. This vote was made possible by then Prime Minister David Cameron, who gambled in 2016 and called the referendum, despite being pro-EU. We are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes, whether to remain in a reformed European Union or to leave. Whether calling the referendum was necessary or not is constantly being questioned. One of the striking things about the referendum was that the number of people who don't usually vote, who voted, as all your listeners will know, when you're talking about a values conflict, and Brexit was a values conflict, people don't tend to change their minds. So, you know, if you look at the referendum campaign, virtually no one changed their minds because of the campaign. Mm -hmm. But what Leave managed to do was to motivate people to come out and vote. Uh, So, you know, you hear all these reports about sort of public housing estates where people who never used to vote were queuing to vote. Uh, And so we got a turnout that surprised most observers. And then combination of things is responsible for the last four years, I suppose. One, the simple fact that leaving the European Union is hard. Even if you think it's the right thing to do, you can't argue it's easy. Okay, just because there's 40 years of membership with the best prime minister in the world, with the biggest majority in the world, leaving the European Union would have been messy and complicated. But of course, we didn't have the best prime minister in the world. After the narrow majority to leave the EU, David Cameron resigned and was replaced by Theresa May. May seemed like someone who could do the least damage to the Brexit negotiations, even though she had voted to stay within the European Union. With May, the Brexit clock officially started ticking. And she didn't have the biggest majority in the world, so it got even worse. You had a prime minister who you had a prime minister who had supported Remain. Exactly, I was going to say that. Yeah, which meant that she her her default setting was to try and placate the Brexiters. So she went over towards a harder sort of Brexit earlier, I think, mm-hmm. and then spent the next four years rowing away from that. By the time she left office, the Brexit she was defending was very different to the Brexit that she'd laid out in October of 2016. Uh, And then, of course, you have the fatal mistake of the election of 2017, where she loses her majority. Then all of a sudden, you have a hung parliament dealing with one issue over which there is no stable majority, either in the country or in parliament. That's to say, if you look at public opinion, if you look at parliamentary votes during those years between 2017 and 2019, the one thing that is absolutely clear is there is no majority for anything. Mm -hmm. And you're doing something very complicated. So the whole thing turned into the mess that we've witnessed for the last uh, four years. So now we're in mid-2019. Theresa May is out and in comes Boris Johnson. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted In his first speech as Prime Minister, he says there'll be a deal by October 2019. And we're going to fulfill the repeated promises of Parliament to the people and come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts. Not only was there no deal then, there was also no deal in October 2020. In fact, the EU and the UK entered December 2020 without a deal. Why was it so difficult to get to a deal? 
for the British government, we're leaving the European Union and we're leaving the European Union in their language because we want to be free. Okay, we want to be an independent, sovereign state. And that means we don't want the European Union telling us what to do. And we certainly don't want to be bound by rules that they have set for us. Okay. However, the British government says we acknowledge the concerns of the European Union, which is we're a very big economy. We're on the doorstep of the EU. We trade a lot with them. We understand why they're a little bit reluctant to give us tariff and quota-free access to their market without guarantees. So our government says, look, we have no intention of cutting our standards, but you're going to have to take our word for it because we're not signing up to your rules because that negates the very point of Brexit. Now, you flip that to the EU side and the EU look at us and they say, great, okay, we'd like to trade with you, but we have to have guarantees and we can't take your word for it. Why? When we were a member of the European Union, the British Parliament couldn't change social rights because it was EU law. You had to change it with 28 member states. Now, without the European Union, Parliament can do what it wants on the back of a, of a simple majority. So Boris Johnson might say today, I have no intention of cutting standards. But there are two problems with that. One is, do you believe Boris Johnson? And I'm pretty convinced some people in the European Union don't. But more fundamentally, what Boris Johnson constitutionally can't do is say, my successor won't lower those standards in the future. I mean, from from the European perspective, their position is quite understandable because they can say, we're holding everybody else to this to these high standards, but you mm -hmm. leave and you get preferential treatment after that. I mean, it's not... Well, I mean, I, I, I personally think the EU are being remarkably defensive. One of the paradoxes of this is how the EU underestimates the benefits it, its own market provides. The costs of leaving the single market are far greater than any benefits of having tariff-free access with slightly lower standards. And actually, I think in a way, if the EU said, "Okay, fine, we'll, we'll tell you what, we'll be a little bit generous here. We'll give you a bit of access to our market because ultimately we know in our hearts you're going to be screwed anyway, because you're going to face so many additional costs from being outside the market that we can afford to be generous. Now, I, you know, I, I understand why politics doesn't let that happen, because if you're the French president and you've got companies saying we don't want the British competing with us, you know, protectionism always has a lobby behind it. Do you think the EU was also trying to say, listen, you decided to leave, it is what it is, but we're not going to make it easy for you so that other countries who flirted with the idea at one point or another yep. could go, well, the UK didn't have it so bad, why don't we yep, give it I a think try? That's absolutely true. But I think, again, that's a fundamentally flawed piece of reasoning because no other member state is going to leave. And if you compare... So I said what I said already about the fact that the ties that bind the that bound the UK to membership were far less thick than the ties that bind other member states because for us there was no political narrative about membership it was all about economics so we were we were always the least attached to membership as a member state but add on to that other member states most other member states are small countries small countries don't leave big clubs because big clubs make them feel safe and the other thing i would say is the vast majority of other member states are euro members If you think Brexit was an unholy nightmare, try doing Brexit whilst getting your national currency back. I mean, I just don't see any possibility of anyone trying to emulate what we did, partly because they've watched what we've been through and thought, uh, actually, we won't have that. And one of the striking things about the EU over the last four years is, A, how support for membership has on across the board increased, and B, how even those populist movements that back in 26, 2016 were applauding Brexit... 
Marine Le Pen had the chance to address both Hollande and Merkel, and she did not let the opportunity go to waste. Thank you, Madame Merkel, for being so kind as to come today with your Vice-Chancellor, Administrator of the Province of France. You come here, the both of you, to try to put things right, because your European Union is collapsing. And saying we should do that, none of them are now saying the same thing. You know, Marine Le Pen in, uh, 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 in France is now saying, well, we've got to fight from the inside. So I don't think this fear of emulation is based on anything. The the way you're explaining it, we come to this position where the UK is saying, wait, we're leaving because we want to be sovereign, so we don't want to play by these rules. And the EU is saying, well, if you want to ac have access to the market, you have to play by the rules. And so I don't see much common ground here um, as the negotiations are taking place. No, I think actually there is an utter absence of common ground. You know, if you think back to the dinner between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, all that dinner served to do was to underline in red the fact that we're talking about a fundamental difference of principle here. And because we're talking about a fundamental difference of principle here, both sides said, that's my principle, the other side said, that's my principle. It made it far, far harder to fudge it, I think. What happened at that dinner? Well, at the dinner, they basically, as far as I can see, sat down and, and spelled out each other's positions and they came out and said, we remain very far apart. I'm not sure why it took three hours. Maybe the food was good. <laughs> it, that dinner did not help. And I wanted to ask, how has um, the pandemic impacted the negotiations? I would assume that people would be far less prepared than than they would be absent a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, there are two things. It's, it's affected the negotiations in the sense that it's 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 meant that less attention has been paid at political level to these negotiations than would have been the case. So a very obvious mm -hmm. example is that the two lead negotiators both caught COVID, so the talks had to stop while they recovered. I feel as well as can be expected, confined strictly to my home. But more fundamentally, heads of state and government, quite rightly, have been preoccupied by the pandemic, which means that they haven't spent this year thinking, how do we fix Brexit? And this is a political problem. And it might be that had they given more time and thought and spent more time talking about this during the year, they'd have come up with compromises that are eluding them now. Possibly, I don't know. Uh, but in terms of preparation, you're absolutely right. Whatever the British government does to prepare for Brexit, it needs businesses to prepare as well. They have to get ready for new forms, for getting their goods certified in the European Union. There's a whole raft of new procedures and paperwork that businesses will have to go through to sell to and import from the European Union. And of course, businesses, again, have been preoccupied with COVID. If, you're if, you know, if your business is about to go to the wall because of lockdown, you're not going to spend your time worrying about new uh, customs arrangements. In fact, one of the striking things, Michael Gove, who is heading the preparations inside the British government, was in Parliament ago and said, you know, we've got a survey that shows the majority of businesses thinks they're going to extend this transitional period uh, so we don't need to prepare yet. Because businesses, kind of, many of them are like, you're seriously going to do this to us in the middle of a bloody pandemic? You know, businesses will be less prepared than they otherwise would have been for the real fundamental changes they're going to confront from the 1st of January. And um, throughout the European countries, who's going to be affected the most economically? Well, the UK. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> All right. So I suppose in descending order, the UK 
followed very closely by the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and then you go, and then actually it's, it's quite significantly less. Uh, but then the French, mm-hmm. the Belgians, the Germans, some of the Scandinavians. There are the other, other member states. Whilst it's significant, it's nowhere near the scale we see, we will see here. And And so considering all what's at mm-hmm. stake, how come the political parties in the UK couldn't meet in the middle? If you want to encapsulate Brexit, Brexit is the triumph of the political over the economic. Okay. It is the mm-hmm. sense that actually aggregate economic gains do not justify everything. And sometimes you need to make decisions that cause aggregate economic losses because politically or on matters of political principle, you have to do that. Now, people scoff at that and remain as scoffed at it during the referendum. But one of the interesting, really interesting phenomena in the UK post-referendum is immigration was key to the vote to leave, a desire to end free movement. Subsequent to the referendum, immigration has fallen off the list of priorities of the British people. It's not even in the top 10 in terms of salience, whereas it had been in the top three since about 2002 before. And British people have become more positive about immigration, about the economic and cultural benefits that immigration brings. One of the conclusions you can draw from that is, oh, so this issue of control was serious. It wasn't necessarily the case that people wanted to kick foreigners out. It was simply the case that for some people, it was a bit odd that a country like Britain couldn't control who was coming in and who wasn't coming in. Now we have that control. Uh, so I think actually that the more time I've spent talking to Leave voters and Leave supporting politicians, the more I've come to realize that this this control issue was real. Now, I'm, I don't, I'm not for a moment suggesting that every single Leave voter has been confronted with the trade-off, which is here's control, here's the scale of the economic damage. But I do think that actually looking at this simply in terms of economic rationality is to miss the point. But it was sold to many people as something that will bring also economic prosperity to the to to Britain. This is what 361 million pounds looks like in 20 pound notes. And if you believe the headlines, that's what we're handing over to the EU every week. Yeah, I mean, if I, you know, I'm not here to argue in favor of the Leave campaign, but what I would say is one of the implications of the Leave campaign was we need to change our priorities as a country. One of the things that has happened, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to do too many of these analogies, but uh, the election of President Trump has led to far more political and media attention being paid to small town America. You know, the number of New York Times articles from Midwestern diners that I've seen over the last four years. Probably <laughs> exactly the same thing has happened in the United Kingdom that all of a sudden the South has, has, has noticed the North. It's like, oh, wow, those people aren't very well off. Oh, my God, their life expectancy is less than ours. Oh, my God, no one there's got a degree. How weird. You know, and we have become more aware of problems that blighted us as a country long before the referendum and which had nothing to do with the European Union, to be honest. OK, so uh, I think for many people, this is simply, you know, this has worked. And that is a level of political attention that some communities haven't had since the 60s and 70s. So I'm not for a moment suggesting there's more money to play with. Absolutely not. Because of Brexit, the country, the economy will not grow as fast as it would have grown. But as a sort of sort of jumping up and down and shouting, for God's sake, will you notice me exercise? It's been tremendously successful. Mm -hmm. But whereas in the US, you can 
elect somebody else, elect people out of the office, you leave the the EU and that's that. Um, what do you predict will happen? Because people will see the, the toll that Brexit will actually take, as you mentioned. Remember, Brexit is about growth foregone, okay? It is about the British economy not growing as quickly as it would have grown had we stayed in the European Union. Now, the average voter doesn't look at charts in the in the Financial Times that compare the, the, the progress of the British economy with a with a British doppelganger that is doing better. <laughs> that isn't obvious. Okay. What I'm saying is there's no Brexit cliff edge. You'll get yep. disruption at the ports in January. That will be a bad look for the government, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. But the, the 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 aggregate macro impact on the British economy is not going to is going to be subtle and it's going to be long term. Whilst the economic impacts are real and they are large, it's not necessarily the case that they're fatal for an incumbent government. Now it's Christmas Eve, twenty twenty. There's a week to go until the final deadline approaches and the UK is officially out of the EU, and they've reached a deal. Um, By the way, tonight, on Christmas Eve, I have a small present for anyone who may be looking for something to read in that sleepy post-Christmas lunch moment. This is a deal. How do you feel about it? Well, I mean, I think it's it's obviously a very good thing that they got a deal in the sense that it it, it is better for the economy and it avoids some of the sort of diplomatic and political fallout that there would have been in the event of no deal. You know, I think it's it's worth pointing out that this deal is going to be quite disruptive. Uh, and I think there's a danger of saying, oh, because there's a deal, then everything will be fine. I mean, I was talking to an MP a few weeks ago who said, in November, who said, you'd be amazed at the number of my colleagues who think that if we get a deal, everything will continue as it is now. And you're saying that the deal is going to be disruptive because not many things are covered or because the British part um, gave in? No, I don't think it's because the British gave in. I think... It's partly because some things aren't covered because they couldn't come to an agreement. So there's very little on financial services and indeed on services in general. So there you'll see an immediate impact. If you're an architect planning to go to Lisbon to design a building, you will need a visa. And you will need to prove that your qualifications are acceptable to the Portuguese uh, authorities, which might mean doing an, an accountancy exam in Portugal to pass their qualification because there's no legal presumption that a British architect's qualifications work in Portugal. Life becomes a lot more complicated. But if people see that, you know, it's becoming very difficult, um, as a British person, I want to do this uh, and that, do you think that they might arrive at an agreement later on? This is a guess, but I suspect you will get very little popular resonance if you have a lawyer on the TV saying, this is really sad, I can no longer go and work in my Paris office. Mm -hmm. Who cares about... You know, Rupert, the lawyer who wants to go and practice in Paris, sod you. Well, maybe Rupert, the lawyer, has a lot of influence on the government and therefore... <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the other interesting things that has changed over the last four years, isn't it? Is British politics used to be fantastically responsive to business and particularly financial services. Now, you know, we have a prime minister who very interestingly during the... Uh, Brexit negotiations was caught on tape saying F business. Matt Weston, 
Speaker, uh, the Prime Minister famously said uh, F business in the context of Brexit. Does he not accept that communities such as mine depend on manufacturing such as... But both sides had red lines that made going beyond where they are difficult. So if you're outside the customs union and the single market, then even if you have a tariff and quota-free deal on goods, it still means that goods have to be checked, that exporters have to do export declarations. So trading with the European Union becomes both more expensive and more time-consuming. Let's go through the main points agreed and not agreed upon. The One of them that you mentioned is that there are no tariffs, no quotas, but this yes. will also mean not the trading that existed pre-Brexit. Um, and then the other thing that you uh, touched upon is that uh, services are not included in the deal and financial services are a big part of UK's economy. Um, are we seeing a exodus of businesses, of banks uh, right now? Not to the scale of the worst forecast before the referendum, but what we're seeing rather than an exodus is a lot of, I mean, there's been some relocation, but some firms have simply moved some administrative functions into the European Union so they can register as EU companies and therefore enjoy passporting from the EU. And of course, financial services isn't resolved. We're waiting for a decision from the European Union. Right. And do you think then it's going to be a situation like, for example, Switzerland has with the EU where they have to renegotiate every um, once in a while? Like Switzerland to an extent, but for different reasons. I mean, one, one of the reasons why the Swiss deal is a total nightmare is it's hundreds and hundreds of different bilateral deals layered onto each other. This involves a permanent negotiation for a slightly different reason. You've got a treaty, you've got the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. But, so if you just think about what keeps going and what changes. Firstly, the Northern Ireland Assembly has to give consent to the Northern Ireland Protocol every four years. So guaranteed every four years, you have a fight in Northern Ireland over relations with the European Union, which so that's bubbling away in the background. In five and a half years time, we renegotiate fisheries. And of course, fisheries almost blew the talks up this time. Fishing is a relatively small industry in the UK, but it's always been central to Brexit. Have the best fishing grounds and Europe has taken advantage of that for 40 years. And we want to take our grounds back. So we get to do that all over again in five and a half years time. And if that weren't all enough, in five years time, there's a review of the agreement as a whole. Wow. There's an awful lot mm -hmm. of talking still to happen. And um, what are other points where you would say Britain got what it wanted? Well, Britain got what it wanted in the sense that the, the British Prime Minister wanted to get a deal. His claim now is people said it was impossible to have a deal whilst maintaining your sovereignty. But the price of the Prime Minister getting his deal is that there will be a significant economic impact. That is to say, the more you the more you put emphasis on sovereignty, the less close the economic relationship is going to be. And that's what we've ended up with. Mm -hmm. And what about the EU uh, side? The EU have done rather well out of this because we've got a deal in goods where the EU enjoy a significant trade surplus with the UK, whilst making British services exports to the EU even harder. So purely from the sort of pocketbook perspective of this deal, it looks like the EU has done significantly better than the UK. And um, lastly, um, you have studied this issue through and through. Um, what would you say is the biggest lesson 
um, to take from the Brexit ordeal um, from your uh, point of view as a political scientist? I think the need to plan for unexpected outcomes. I mean, from, from the perspective of political science, the interesting thing for me is, you know, when I started doing this job, which was, what, five years ago now, uh, the only thing you read in the journals, you know, how change happens slowly over time and, you know, things are locked in. And then we've lived through the last five years where everything seems to be overturned every 24 hours. And it's just a salutary lesson, I think, to be careful about our assumptions when we're studying politics. Absolutely. Um, Professor Manon, thank you so much uh, for being twice as a guest. Thank you so time. much for listening to this episode of The Dive. If you support our mission of bringing you the world's leading experts to talk straightforwardly about the news, then please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to it. And follow us on social media at The Dive Podcast.